Good evening. Thank you all so much for coming. My name is Emily Duffy, and I'm pleased to welcome you all here this evening for a discussion on Pope Francis's much-talked-about encyclical, which was released last week. Tonight, I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Chad Pecknell, Associate Professor of Theology at Catholic University, Dr. Jay Richards, Assistant Research Professor in the School of Business and Economics at the Catholic University of America, and Mark Verlena, Director of the Office of Domestic Social Development in the Department of Justice, Peace, and Human Development at the USCCB. Chad, we'll start off with you this evening. Many are talking about this encyclical as the environmental encyclical, but encyclicals first and foremost um, make a theological argument. And in your view, what is a theological argument be made in this work? Yeah, thanks. I mean, I think that it is a complex encyclical with several strands of argumentation. Um, uh, encyclicals, of course, are are authoritative, magisterial uh, documents which touch faith and morals at the deepest levels. And here we see Pope Francis, I think, making a, an argument that uh, has been made throughout Christian history, an argument that the turn away from God is always going to be a self-destructive turn. And this is the most fundamental argument, that all of our self-destructive habits, the the self-destruction uh, of suicide, euthanasia, the, the, the kind of self-destruction that goes on in abortion, the kind of self-destruction that goes on in lots of vicious habits which deteriorate a life, the kinds of self-destruction that go on when you pollute a river. Um, all of these are connected for Francis, but every single instance of a destructive, self-destructive tendency for him is a consequence of the turn away from God. And so there's a sort of Dostoevsky-like sense in the encyclical to call people back to God. There are several conversions that he calls uh, readers to. Obviously, the most popular discussion point for conversion has been the ecological conversion. But this is a sort of baseline question about being converted to the principle that creation is a good and that it's a good because it comes from God's goodness. So that ecological conversion is really just a conversion conversion to the to the world as a common good that we care about, a, a pre-political, if you will. But then there's the conversion to God, that if we don't return to God, then we'll continue on these self-destructive paths. And then ultimately, it's the call to the conversion to Christ, and then the conversion to, uh, of all things, elevated to God in the Eucharist. Uh, the Eucharistic conversion is the kind of culmination. St. Francis is the saint who embodies all of this for Pope Francis, because St. Francis is the one, as he uh, cites Bonaventure, who says St. Francis is the one who found a way to break back into that original innocence in which uh, the creator and the creation had an original harmony. And that's a harmony that he can only have by being conformed to Christ. You know, Francis lived a secular, wealthy life, and he turned away from that and towards God and he was conformed to Christ so fully that he uh, was given the stigmata, the wounds of Christ, which, of course, the Eucharist itself um, is something which conforms St. Francis to that original harmony between uh, the creator and creation, uh, which orders us to a new heaven and a new earth. That's the fundamental argument, theological argument being made now, there's lots of sort of moral footholds along the way, but that's the theological argument as I see it. Thank you. Um, Jay, I'd like, to, I'd like to turn to you. Many people are calling this the, the climate change encyclical, and while that's maybe too simplistic of an understanding of it, it's clear that climate change is a key issue in the encyclical, and I was wondering if you could address that and tell us a little bit about how Pope Francis handles this issue. Sure. In, in fact, I noticed in the media it's being called the eco-encyclical. Eco I mean, you know, that, that sort of road itself, you know, you got the ease. I do think if we do nothing else in this discussion that this uh, encyclical we ought to note 
for the first time in history, the average American is going to learn the word encyclical. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, it, I'm from Texas, and if you're from Texas and you're not a Catholic, you would think it's called encyclical. Trust me. <laughs> or so recycling. Yeah, or recycling. Right. How does that relate to recycling? So that we'll at least accomplish that. But there's a reason that it was called the eco encyclical. I don't encyclical. It's not. Um, see, I'm switching back into the Texas accent. Um, because, of course, it starts with that. This is what was discussed for months. Media were calling any of those of us who write on these issues months before the encyclical came out, before we had read it, to comment on the thing that hadn't been read and hadn't been written, which was sort of difficult. And so that was sort of framed. But also, he talks quite explicitly, not just about climate change, but about what we would think of as natural environmental issues, whether it's polluted water or air or just the sort of uh, endangered species and all those sorts of things. But just to kind of get down to brass tacks, how much of it is specifically about climate science and sort of climate issues? If you're to sort of boil it down just to the word, so far as I can tell, it's about 2% of the text explicitly deals with climate science. And there's a section at, near the beginning in which Pope Francis sort of states what he thinks the kind of state of the debate, what the facts are by his lights uh, about climate science, what's happening. Nevertheless, I would say it's not easy to say, okay, well, that's just 2% of the text, so um, you know, these are sort of complicated empirical questions, and so we don't really have to deal with that. Because a lot of what he says, a lot of the sort of moral deliverables in some way, presuppose his assessment of the situation. And so that's what makes any, any document like this difficult, because of course we believe, if you're a Catholic, or at least an Orthodox Catholic, that God protects the Pope when he is in com communion with the bishops, and uh, speaking from the seat of Peter, that he's protected from error, right? But then always the difficult question is, okay, so what specific thing is he being protected from here, and when is he making sort of empirical judgments or making prudential judgments, that is, an, a moral application given particular details? And honestly, it's tough in this document. It's not like those pieces are separated into different sections. The whole thing is integrated, as Chad said, it sort of weaves in and out so that there are multiple themes. Uh, but this is how I would try to lay it out sort of conceptual, at least at this point. I've only, I've only read it twice. Uh, is that the sort of core theological point is what uh, Professor Pegnold said. Uh, he talks a lot about anthropocentrism and the critique of relativism. That is the idea that man, the human person, is uh, the judge of all things. That the human person dictates the good, the true, and the beautiful. On the other hand, he pushes back very strongly against the misanthropic strain in, in some environmentalism, which essentially treats the human, human beings as a sort of parasite on creation. So there's this kind of obvious Catholic and Christian understanding of the human person who is not God, but is made in the image of God and is placed in the garden. Uh, and you know, we know the story, the biblical story. God places the, the man and the woman in the garden, and then he commands them and blesses them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And it's a blessing and a command, and have dominion over the fish of the water and the birds in the air and the, every creeping thing. Now, dominion there is the dominion of the benevolent king. It's not the dominion of the sort of rapacious uh, evil king. That's a command that happens prior to the fall. So to till and to keep the garden is a part of our sort of creation mandate. It's a part of God's blessing to us. And that's the central point. So the human person properly understood in creation, this creature made the image of God and intrinsically good, uh, who, who gets his dignity and meaning from that status, and then is placed as a sort of vice regent uh, with responsibility over the created order. I think that's the core theological thing in this that's sort of the beating heart of it. Then he, he has uh, a lot of judgments about sort of detailed science. I'll just describe these here. We could talk about them during the Q&A if you want. I think he, he very strongly believes that climate change is a real thing, that is that not just that the climate always changes. I mean, that's a, that's a truism, but that there's some kind of unnatural climate change that's happening right now, that it's largely human-caused, uh, that is largely human-caused by way of greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide, and that we need to do something drastic about it and soon. I think it'd be very hard to read this document and not think that that's his judgment about the science. Now, at the same time, there are key paragraphs in which he says, of course, the church doesn't presume to dictate details of science. And we all, I mean, we all know uh, the sensitivity of the atmosphere to CO2. That's not a sort of perennial uh, teaching of the faith, right? That, that's a, a different kind of thing. Um, and so, and he, of course, recognizes that. And then there's the prudential judgment. That is, 
given the core theological and moral point, given what he assesses to be the sort of factual situation on the ground, then he has proposals for how to, what we ought to do about it. Those are all different things. It's actually very, even that climate question is a complicated question. Whether there's climate change is one question. What's causing it? The degree to which humans are causing it. Is it bad? Is it mixed? And then what policies would make a difference? Those are all separate and very complicated questions for anybody that sort of follows the debate. Uh, and so I do think it's important to first get kind of clear and focused on what the beating heart is rather than to talk about these sort of complicated questions. I can tell you the media actually don't care very much, or the media that I managed to interact with, except for Catholic News Service, about the beating heart. What they want to know is what, what are politicians going to do? That, that's a sort, essentially the question. What do the Pope say about climate change? That's all anybody wants to talk about. I think it's a mistake for us as Catholics to say, well, it's not what encyclicals are about, because he talks a lot about it. I just think we've got to, if we have the time, make sure we get these things in the right order. Thank you. Mark, I'd like to bring you in here. You work with the bishops at the USCCB, and I know you were involved in the effort to create space in the United States in preparation for this encyclical. And I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about that work, and then also, now that the encyclical is out, how will this really impact the faithful at the diocesan level? Great, yeah. Um, in some sense, some of the things I'm going to say have already been covered to, to some extent, but I've heard it said that a, a conversation about ecology is really a conversation about everything. Um, and I think Pope Francis very much took that spirit in writing this, and it's not just the page count uh, <laughs> that indicates that, I think. Um, it really is a view of relationship, relationship with God, relationship with one another, relationship with the, the good things of the earth um, in an integrated way. And so that, that term integral ecology comes up in many, many different places. It's, it's a central feature. Um, and so because uh, the bishop chairman uh, that oversee the committees that, that um, I answer to were very uh, interested in making sure that people had an opportunity to read this, move past some of the partisan lenses that folks automatically look at care for creation through, and in a sense, um, an area that, that the faith really did have some ownership of but have, has lost, uh, at least in, in sort of a, in a popular way recently. I think the Holy Father and the bishops in the United States wanted to reclaim some of that space for conversation, for the teaching to, to permeate and to, to sit with folks. Um, and so a lot of our work went into supporting um, uh, the bishop chairman's brother bishops in, in being able to speak, teach, um, and allow some room for the faithful to consider this. And so I would say, Anybody here who has not read it or has, has felt inclined not to read it, if you do nothing else but do that, I think you'll be well served. And that really is, is, is the main thing in terms of creating resources. Um, the bishops got the document a little bit earlier than everybody else, and so we were able to, to provide some things to, to, to communicators within the um, dioceses to allow them to, to, to speak. Anything that happens uh, on an international or a national stage relating to the church, the local, the local press are interested in the, the, the bishops' uh, views on those things. So we wanted to make sure folks were well, were well served there and really give them a sense of what the flavor was, where, where were some of the things that you're going to get asked about. Um, so we, we did quite a lot of that um, in creating some of the space. Um, now at this, at this stage, it's a little bit of a shift uh, to try to continue the dialogue that I think is you know, 10, 20 uh, years more down the, down the line about where does the Christians see themselves in this conversation about care for creation, and as we'll talk more about, I think, uh, going along here, this was this was really a master uh, work for the Holy Father in giving us a way to look at this issue. Would you folks look at look at it with some skepticism based on who may be advancing a particular part of the conversation? But for us to look at this in a really Christian, uh, Catholic way, uh, you don't often hear Pope Francis and, and Saint Pius X mentioned in the same sentence, but. You know, his motto, to restore all things in Christ, I think um, in some sense Pope Francis was trying to do this um, with care for creation, to, to give us a way to look at it in a, in a way that we can be more comfortable and advance some of the things we care a lot about uh, regarding our faith uh, in the conversations that we're having nationally and globally. So um, we're going to be trying to support conversations at the diocese uh, levels, study groups, homilies on, on the issue. And in more than one place, in quite a number of places, the Holy Father talks about a dialogue and inviting people into a dialogue. Um, this is one area where conversation seems to, to be hard to come by. So I think even if folks were able to engage with one another, and we actually saw in some of our preparation, um, unusual partners give some space for the Holy Father's teaching here and not necessarily want to 
um, co-opted, you know, whether it's groups who, who deal with environmentalism on a daily basis or, or folks maybe who um, you are wondering why the Holy Father's talking about this. There's a little bit of a wide berth here, and that was refreshing to see a bit unexpected. So. Thank you. Chad, I'd like to turn back to you. We're in Washington where politics imbue everything, it seems. So I have to ask this question. Um, Pope Francis talks a lot about political concerns. And I want to ask you, to what extent are Catholic politicians obliged to follow the policy recommendations of a papal encyclical, such as Laudato Si? A absolutely. You're totally bound. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> Penalty of death. <laughs> Let's go get a drink. We're done. There we go. We're done. Um, it's, let me say one thing before I answer your question, which is that this encyclical is interesting not because of climate skepticism, but because of common good skepticism. That there's really a deep and profound cultural skepticism about there being any common good whatsoever. And one of the brilliant things that the Holy Father does in this encyclical, it seems to me, is it says there is something which is prior to all of our political thinking. And that's this common creation, this, this common home that we all share that's prior to all of us, that's prior to every political union, and that we all ought to care about that, right? We all ought to uh, be committed to the principle of creation care. And this, it seems to me, is precisely where he touches most fundamentally in his moral authority as the supreme pontiff. Now, he does not teach infallibly in this document. It, I saw a lot of uh, sort of buzz about infallibility. The papal infallibility uh, is very rarely in, invoked, which most of you here will know, but somehow that does not get communicated. Uh, as uh, St. John Paul II said, um, I, I'm never going to declare anything infallible, so as far as my teaching is concerned, it's fallible. <laughs> um, uh, but because a teaching is not infallible, does not mean it is not authoritative. And the Holy Father's teaching is authoritative. It is more authoritative, even when it's, infall when it's not uh, infallible, double negative, when it's fallible, um, it is more authoritative than the doctors of the church, than Augustine or Aquinas. So even, even though it's, it is uh, not a question of infallibility, it is a question of authority, and the Catholic politician has an obligation, a duty, to let this teaching form their conscience. Now, at the, question, at, at the level of thinking about policy for a particular context, the Pope himself says, he, the church does not prof provide a uniform set of concrete political policy prescriptions or economic prescriptions. What the Pope is providing is teaching at the level of precept, of principle, at which the Catholic politician whose conscience has been formed by the Holy Father's teaching can then apply those principles to the particular policies that he or she attends to in matters of legislation. So, for example, a Catholic politician could say, um, I think climate change is happening. I don't happen to think the air conditioning is causing it. However, I am committed to the principle and the precept that the Holy Father has articulated, and therefore I'm going to not support a tax on air conditioning, but I am going to support the cleanup of Anacostia River because the principle has been articulated in such a way that I know now how that can guide particular policy decisions that make a difference for the common good. So we come back to the common good for the Catholic politician who is actually able to raise up the city because their conscience has been formed, not because uh, this foreign potentate, as Locke called popes, this foreign potentate has somehow dictated how the policies of every individual uh, nation and sovereign people would make their policy decisions. So I think it's, it's a very complex um, set of distinctions that one makes that the Catholic politician has the gift of docility, receives a formation in their conscience, um, and then applies those principles according to prudence under precepts of the natural law. That's the tradition. Jay, 
Pope Francis also talks a lot about economics and the global economy. Mm -hmm. And he has a lot of critical things to say about our current economic state of affairs. Again, how would you describe Pope Francis's views in this letter, and what's your own assessment of it? That one, this is more difficult to answer, I think, than the climate thing, because there are multiple threads happening here. They're both, I think, his own uh, general kind of understanding of the nature of economics as a discipline. There's also a, a very strong critique of uh, what I'll, I'll sort of summarize it as a, the kind of technocratic attitude, the idea that everything can ultimate, ultimately be reduced to the methods of science and to technology. So everything is, is sort of swept up in this. And I think he's actually has nailed it on this, because this is the sense in which we do live in a global culture in which the pope can say something, and he can tweet it all over the world. I mean, that by itself kind of tells you uh, where we are. But he, he, he tapped into this kind of ideological assumption that's not intrinsic to science. It's not intrinsic. Uh, to, to technology, but it does tend to get wrapped up into it. And so he's, he's very, very critical of that. He's very critical of consumerism. He's, cons he's critical of um, what I would call cronyism. He doesn't use that word, but uh, the, the sort of collusion between large economic actors, whether they be corporations or multinational corporations, and political actors. Um, you know, I, I would sort of wish that he had used the word cronyism, in fact, to make some sort of distinctions. That's not there, but I do think that's what uh, he has in mind, and so he very often is describing that. He has a, a couple of paragraphs, I don't want to overemphasize it, where he talks about the importance of an environment in which small businesses can flourish and are not, and are not crushed. Um, uh, but the, there's a lot of kind of economic details in this that unfortunately doesn't sort of lay out a set of economic principles. And so it very quickly gets into the, a sort of prudential judgment, uh, especially when you're talking about environmental issues. Because environmental issues, almost every judgment you make about something having to do with an environmental stewardship question is a series of trade-offs. Some of you may have seen, for instance, the story in the Washington Post yesterday about the kind of complexities of, of recycling. There are things, and you know, people often ask me, I, I write and talk about this issue a lot, and they'll ask me, should I recycle? And I always say you should recycle if the total costs ex uh, or the total benefits exceed the total cost. That's a weasel way out, right? Because that's the sort of tough thing. Uh, but what's funny is he's actually kind of quite got some nuanced references way down at the granular level. So he talks about carbon credits, which I actually happen to think are not a good idea. The idea is that you'd create a market mechanism by which you can trade uh, carbon credits. So you have a factory, and let's say you're producing certain, a certain number of tons of, of CO2, and then you can sort of trade those on the market. Um, well, it, it makes a lot of sense. It sounds like a market-driven solution, but uh, we know when this was tried earlier that there were Chinese factories that were building factories precisely to create these things so they could have the credits. And so he was aware of the fact that there's, it's sort of easily corruptible. And so I do think many of the ways in which he sort of analyzes this, um, sort of environmental issues, depends upon his prior understanding of economics. And so uh, I wouldn't say he's, he's uniformly critical of the market per se, though he doesn't have a lot of friendly things to say, certainly about international business. He has some very critical things to say about uh, the, the sort of overly top-heavy financial aspects of the world economy um, and some things that he said in, in the previous encyclical. Um, but I do think uh, that this is the difficulty, is that both his assessment of the facts about the environmental situation and his understanding about economics are weaved together in this encyclical so that it ends up being very, very complicated. I told someone the other day that there would probably, if I were going to write an op-ed on this, I would need to write 100 about each different thing in order to do it justice. Because the temptation in a document that's 45,000 words and that ranges so freely is to just kind of focus on the things you like. And you can, any encyclical that's written sort of post-conciliar age, it's so complicated and multifaceted that the temptation for everyone is to kind of latch on to those things that, that we like and not to talk about the things we don't like. And so. Um, and my, my Twitter handle is FreeMarketJ, so my views on economics are fairly well known. Uh, I think markets work better than most of the alternatives. Um, nevertheless, I feel like, okay, because I write on environmental and economic issues and have for a long time, I need to talk about this and not be evasive. The temptation is to say, well, I just, let's just talk about the theology. I think for me to do that, it would be evasive because it's all sort of a piece in this document and not easily disentangled. Mark, I understand that you were part of briefings at, in the House, the Senate, or the White House right after the encyclical came out. 
And I was hoping you could share with us a little bit about how those presentations were received. And also, do you think that there will be any sort of movement in terms of hearts, minds, or policy in response to this encyclical? Well, it's, I don't know if it should be a surprise, but much like this room, I mean, there's folks maybe you don't realize that the standing room only in the back. Um, we, it wasn't hard to get an audience to talk about the, the encyclical before the thing came out or uh, certainly the day of. And we were able to get um, into the House, the Senate, and the White House within 24 hours to, to basically give what I think is a, you know, a more um, a full view of what the Holy Father was saying than, than what maybe the news networks were going to be giving them. Um, so I think that was a great blessing. In general, um, I would say that there, you know, we spoke to packed rooms. Um, because we proceeded, I think, in a logical order of, of talking about that fuller vision, the wide-ranging vision that the Holy Father brought to the conversation, um, you know, his invitation to dialogue, his conversation that I think really left you with a hopeful feeling about it, um, the integral ecology, the care for the poor and future generations that, that really root any of the conversations that have to do with science, uh, I think, in a context that is important to, to keep it in. Um, there, wasn't, there weren't as many difficult questions that came back our way than uh, you know, I would have expected you know, a few more hardballs. But I think those who came into the briefings feeling like we were going to be talking about a single issue um, within the encyclical, one that is certainly important to the Holy Father, and we didn't downplay in any way, but um, they, they came away feeling that there was something more here, something more uh, substantive and an ability uh, for them, I think, to, to, to look at the document and look and see what, uh, what it says. Interestingly enough, uh, you know, one senator at least has already quoted the encyclical on the, on the Senate floor uh, just yesterday. So I think it's getting into the policy conversations. In terms of heart and minds and the policy itself, I think what we're going to see is a little more space for conversation than we had before. The fact that anybody showed up to kind of hear what this was going to say, and, and they're still interested in hearing from us. We're going to be meeting with some of the committees and, and folks along the way uh, in the future. shows me that they're there are a number of, of legislators who are wrestling with different aspects of care for creation and how they find a way uh, within the political environment they're in to, to, to honor what they feel and, and some of the dynamics they have within, their, within the parties and the interests that, that influence politics. So um, I would say it's an improvement over the day before the encyclical hit uh, already. And um, I think that's just going to grow. And, and as I said before, this is, this is a, a conversation I think that's going to be decades long. You know, Ten years from now, we're not going to be having the conversation in the same place uh, as we do now. And that's, you know, I think the Holy Father will be effective, at least in that. We'll see what happens in Paris. He, he did make uh, clear that I think the encyclical was meant to influence Paris and, and some of the, the talks with other nations. So um, I don't know what's going to come of that. I think it's, you know, any of the things with the international community are going to be a heavy lift, particularly since the policy uh, is going to get specific at some point, And that's going to be getting agreement and getting nations to, to say this is something they all see as important is going to be a little bit of a, a heavier lift. And then, of course, here domestically, I think we have the same, the same challenges. But um, just can I always see it? Thank you. Yeah. And with that, I'd like to open the floor up to questions from the audience. Hey, my name is uh, Mariana Barrios. My question for the panel is the previous pope was also very much in interested in environmental mm -hmm. issues, so much so that he was called the Green Pope. Um, how is this a building on that um, that interest, or what would you say are the differences, similarities? Um, yeah, it, it definitely is. A, the, the difficulty in the way that this is presented, because there is an international media, we'll just call it a conspiracy, to, to report on Pope Francis as in discontinuity with popes that came before him. And so there were some great stories that came out in the first few months after his pontificate where there'd be all these quotes. Uh, supposedly from Francis, right, because they fit the narrative. It turns out they were all from John Paul II or from Benedict XVI. Uh, and so it's, in many ways it's in continuity. And in fact, at least since 1971, we've had popes that have talked specifically, not just generally about human beings as stewards, but about environmental issues in particular. And so there's no, I think in, in that sense it's in continuity. It's in a much higher level of detail than anything that went before. I mean, it's an entire encyclical, first of all, and it's a long encyclical, and it's focused specifically on this issue. And so in that sense, it goes beyond anything else that's ever been said. But it's, I mean, at the core, it's not only in continuity with the, the you know, uh, continuous teaching of the church on core doctrines of the faith, but in terms of concern about the environment, at least the last four popes have said things about this. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, cool. yeah. Um, the Holy Father, uh, Pope Francis, is no fool. I mean, I think if you look at the number of footnotes that cite his predecessors in the document, it's clear that 
the continuity piece was something he cared a lot about. And just for reference, uh, numbers four through six specifically reference the contributions of, of his predecessors. Um, and that's you know very early in the document, obviously. So I think he wanted very much to build on it. Um, and you know, uh, Pope Benedict was was clear. He includes uh, climate change as something that he was concerned about in his World Day uh, a peace message in 2010. So that even uh, isn't a unique contribution from uh, Pope Francis, whatever you may think about the science. So, Rob Hardikan, um, sort of a follow-up question. Um, question about addressing. Um, historical question, is the response different to this encyclical? You know, the, all these themes are from Paul VI are, are similar. They're reprisals. Um, why was the response quiet to when from 1971 on, onwards? Um, what's going on? Is, is it the fact that he's a, a Jesuit from Latin America? Is it, is it just sort of the environment that we're in now? Is it the fact that it's um, a longer, more detailed document? Um, that's how, that seems like your question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really hard. To, I mean, I think uh, some of the advanced interest has as much to do with the messenger as it does with the message. Um, there are some, uh, I mean, in terms of popularity of Pope Francis in all circles, uh, including Catholic circles, folks of all different um, identifications within the Catholic world, uh, the Holy Father is a very popular figure. So I think um, particularly because some com- conversations around um, Climate change had, had stalled uh, for a number of years in the political arena. There was, there's definitely some folks who looked at this as a way to, to get the conversation going again. Uh, and I think uh, when you look at, um, you look at the the amount of attention that uh, the Holy Father is able to bring to any particular issue, you know, the World Day of Peace message in 2010 isn't going to get noticed, uh, you know, very very much. This is this is a document that, you know. As was mentioned, has has authority to it is is weighty and is you know Pope Francis. I, I kind of think about the way he writes. Um, you know, he touches on a subject and keeps circling back in deeper and deeper ways. So if you don't read the whole thing, you take it out of context, you're going to miss uh, key pieces of it. You, if you go through the whole thing, by the time you're done, you feel like you've touched on the issue, whatever it may be, you know, 20 times, but you've gone to a deeper understanding and, and, and how he views it in a very uh, wide-ranging way. And so people know, I think Pope Francis wouldn't. Uh, wouldn't treat this in a couple of pages. This is going to be um, a pretty pretty extensive document. So some of those things, I think, uh, the way in, and, and I don't know, you guys have some insight into that question. But. I'll just add one, one thing to that. That's beautiful. Um, is that he was going to, you, you could have predicted he was going to write an encyclical on the environment the moment he said, Francesco. The moment he said, I am Pope Francis. The moment the birds landed on the head. <laughs> You knew he was going to write an encyclical on the environment at some point on creation, on that harmony between the creator and creation. He was going to write on it. Um, I expect that was one of his first thoughts, and then it was a question of giving people marching orders in terms of how do we consolidate the tradition. I I was a little disappointed that we didn't go back prior to Paul VI in the encyclical. I thought it would. There was lots of ways and sort of missed opportunities if not to critique the encyclical in the wrong way, but uh, there's lots of things uh, that go into Rerum Navarum, for example, uh, which private property is touched upon in this encyclical, and that uh, is a theme which goes all the way back to the origins of Catholic social teaching in the 19th century. So there was lots of things that could have been done to have resonated, but he... he, um, he certainly did consolidate the traditions teaching, and he he made it all. He he made Saint Francis the kind of endpoint of that teaching, and so you knew as soon as he said, "I'm Pope Francis," that he was going to write on it. Hi, thanks. Um, I have a question for Mark. Mark, um, you know, it's sort of like getting the impression in the popular imagination now that um, you know you hear a lot of things like people are saying, "Okay, Pope John Paul, Saint John Paul was you know an Orthodox Pope." Pope Benedict was Orthodox. Now we've got this granola pope, you know. And um, what are the bishops doing? What can the bishops do? And what can you know we as believers do to sort of disabuse the public of this notion that all of a sudden we have this renegade pope who has kind of reneged on all of the traditions? You know, it's so obvious from this document that he's 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 dipped into tradition and that his teaching and what he's saying is no different from what Pope Benedict said and from what Pope John Paul II said. 
And yet I hear a lot of people walking around saying things like, oh my God, he's going to change the teaching on marriage, or he's going to whatever, as if there's sort of like, you know, because he's talking about the environment now, um, he's reneging on sexual morality or, you know, things like that. And in fact, he isn't. Um, is this an issue that the bishops are sort of taking into account in the public imagination right now? Yeah, I mean, it's a big question. Um, I think, and this is me speaking, you know, I should always say that I'm here in my individual capacity, not as, uh, you know, officially representing the USCCB, but it is, I think, we have to have comfort that the Holy Spirit is active and working in the church. Um, and I think sometimes our fears, wherever they may come from about any particular area, um, can sometimes take us to a place where, you know, we're concerned about the treasury and the beauty of what we've been given that has transformed our lives. Hopefully, our encounter with Christ has, has radically changed us. And if that's the case, um, we want other people to experience that, and we want it to be as profound in their lives as it is in ours. And anything that seems to border on jeopardizing that, you know, we should get concerned about. But when it comes to the Holy Father, um, you know, we do have uh, we do have the Holy Spirit active and working. And um, you know, I think when we, he he is certainly looking at issues of all kinds in in different ways. In the sense that um, you know, we're in the midst, I think, of the of the um, uh, the grassroots uh, new evangelization piece. You know, we've been talking about the new evangelization for a long time. But now we're getting down to work. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, um, our modes of doing things, I mean, I, if, if we think sort of in an early church mode, we're a lot closer to those realities than we are maybe to thinking about the height of Christendom, which is sometimes where um, we all want to be. So uh, that's, that's a different kind of marching order. That's the same content, the, the, the richness of the gospel, but we've got to go... When he's talking about going to the peripheries, he's, he says you can't wait for people to come to you. You know, you can't hold the class. You need to go and, and make sure you're uh, engaging people. And I, you know, I come to this job out of having worked in the Catholic Charities environment, and um, my most powerful experiences centered around encounter. The only reason I moved out of um, you know, a private sector legal job into that world was because of the encounters I had with those in need, never expecting it to happen. And so I think Pope Francis lives very much in that, in that mold, and, and the encounters he had he wants to make sure every one of us, um, you know, reach the afterlife having having felt that uh, encounter with Christ through the other. And so, when you look at a document like this or anything else that the, the Holy Father is doing, I think if you keep that lens, it all makes a lot more sense uh, than if we're taking it uh, maybe from a place of, of concern or fear. Um, I don't know if that actually answers your question, but that's that's how I try to uh, work through things. Hi, my name's Tyler Dobbs. So Rusty Reno of First Things mm -hmm. characterized the encyclical as an attack on modernity and likened it to Blessed Pius IX's syllabus of errors. So my question for the panel is, do you think this is accurate? Is the encyclical a new syllabus of errors? <laughs> I, I, read, I read that, so yeah. Um, it, it's very difficult. I mean, honestly, almost any one thing you say about the encyclical is gonna be one-sided. And so there's a sense in which it is a broadside against modernity, if you define modernity in a particular way, as this sort of technocratic, reductionistic understanding of, the, of society and of the human person. Uh, on the other hand, it was tweeted, right? And so there's this, this is very difficult, you know, how do you sort of keep all these things together? But I think um, what we probably want to do is distinguish between the sort of just the basic human goods of technology and the things. If we want to talk about modernity as right now, right? We, it's better that we have clean water that we can get from the tap than not. It's better that we don't die of polio and all those sorts of things. If by modernity, though, you're talking about a particular kind of materialistic and reductionist ideology that emerged maybe at full flower in the 19th century, then it is a broadside against that. Uh, but the interesting thing is, is that our culture now, there's tension between that. I mean, the joke about the Granola Pope, there's this, I, I lived in Seattle until two years ago, and right alongside, in the same person, you will have someone that's an architect at Microsoft that also lives out on a farm and has organic free-range chickens, simultaneously, right? My sense of that is, in a sense, it's contradictory, but it's also a sense that it, either of those things by themselves aren't sort of fully appropriate to the human person. And so I think that that Rusty Reno, he's sort of focusing on that. The problem is that mo the word modernity refers to so many different things that, you know, it'd be easy to mischaracterize. I, Rusty's piece is brilliant. Um, it's, it's clever because it, it has within it a criticism um, that he's, he's anti-modern in the wrong ways. Anti-modern um, in the wrong ways is the, the fundamental critique I think Rusty's making. Um, 
under cover of looking like he's not making a critique at all. Um, and, and you have to be really smart to do that. Uh, and so um, I, think, I think it's better to say he's anti-modern enough to claim X or he's anti-modern enough to claim Y. I don't think it's right, actually, to say that he's anti-modern. Um, uh, and I don't actually think that's a really good way to advance the conversation, though I respect Rusty's position uh, very much. Um, what's very clear to me is that Pope Francis attacks the myth of progress, which yes. can hit left and right. Um, I think this is one of the, the most trenchant critiques, actually, is, is this uh, view that there's a kind of modern progressivism which drives a culture of relativism. Uh, he attacks indifferentism, which of course was one of the favorite terms of attack for syllabus of errors, indifferentism um, to truth, indifferentism to the good. Uh, it was a favorite term of attack for um, Leo the Thirteenth. So in that sense, those attacks on indifferentism, those attacks on a progressivism um, which uh, leads to relativism uh, are, are very much central to the document, and you could say it's anti-modern enough. Uh, I'd also say there's an argument to be made that there's a kind of modern Gnosticism that's being attacked. Um, the, uh, he likes to put it um, in, in these terms, that Gnosticism here might mean something like letting ideologies triumph over material realities. That's a favorite theme of Francis, that ideological colonization is a phrase that we've heard him use in relationship to gender theory. Um, he doesn't like this. This is a kind of Gnostic move in which ideology trumps material reality. Can I just say something briefly about, because... I keep thinking of all the things we haven't talked about that I wish we haven't talked about the role of the poor, for instance. I'm just going to lay it out there. So you can say, those guys talked for half an hour and didn't make that point, right? Uh, But this idea about progress, so this is really a a good analysis, a way of sort of thinking about his point. It's not that clean water is a bad thing, insofar as you think that's a deliverance of modernity. But there is this ideology that doesn't use this word called transhumanism. And transhumanism is the idea that you, people think I'm making this up whenever you talk about it, but that in about 30 years, essentially, we are going to move beyond our fleshly hardware and upload ourselves uh, to some sort of more robust and immortal hardware. I'm not making this up. It's very popular in California. It's not a big deal here, but um, <laughs> right. But that is that's like just take the myth of progress in which technology is not just a good thing. It's not just an expression of our creatureliness as creatures made in the image of God who can create things, but it's ultimately our salvation and that our destiny is ultimately beyond this mortal flesh, not, it, not with a resurrected body, but as not even cyborgs, not even as hybrids, but ultimately to leave it behind for something that we have created. And that is a very popular thing. And it's a very popular thing in high-tech circles. And it sounds crazy, but lots of very smart and serious billionaires with a lot of power and influence think this. And so... Uh, you know, I think there's a strong pushback, uh, and I hope people will write about the implications of that from this encyclical because it's in there. Thank you for y'all's very informative talk. I very much appreciate it, and at the Texas Roots as well. Um, <laughs> and I had a question that I think y'all both all touched upon, but I would love to hear expounded upon a little bit. This idea that the Pope specifically you know, most of his authority is in the area of faith and morals, and that the Holy Spirit is guiding the church. So we have this this great encyclical in many ways that does um, set this framework for an appreciation of God's creation. But I guess my question is, it seems that um, Pope Francis has kind of chosen maybe to push the envelope a little bit as far as the policy implications of that go. And not just in this issue, but with even different things like policy on Cuba and um, comments that he made about Paris and the attacks there. And this seems to be possibly a trend. And so I'm curious if y'all could maybe comment as to um, what, how that is helpful in furthering the church's mission. Hmm. I would leave that answer to that last part to history. Um, because in some ways you could say, well, precisely by talking about policy, precisely by talking about Paris in December, and I'm happy to talk about that, 
everyone's talking about it. This is the reason the media is interested in it. It just is, right? If he hadn't talked about this, if it had been just purely a theological treatise about the doctrine of creation and the human person, um, you know, as an academic, I, I would like to have that. The reality is, though, we probably wouldn't be having a crowd like this, frankly, right, if that were what it was. And so um, whether that's the right thing to do, I think, is a sort of long-term question. The danger, I think, is that if, if an encyclical gets too much down in the weeds at, in terms of sort of current events, is that it will feel uh, dated in five years or ten years. And so it's like, well, there's a huge chunk sort of talking about these different climate uh, uh, conferences that the UN have had, all of which have been utterly futile. None of them have done anything uh, except, you know, run up a, a big bill and increase the carbon footprint of the people that participate, frankly. And so it's like, the, okay, and so it's, it's like a lead up to Paris in December. And so my worry is if you get too far out on that, then what happens in January? When I could tell you what's going to happen, and I'll go out on a limb, there will be a lot of talk. There will be a lot of talk about the reduction of of carbon dioxide by Western countries, probably by the United States. And if you look at the Mauna Loa Observatory, uh, and every year the CO2 content in the atmosphere will go up one to two parts per million, and it will keep doing that after Paris. Um, and it's because these two very large countries, India and China, are at the beginning of an uptick of industrialization, and they don't have access to other forms of energy, and they don't want to starve to death. It's just kind of basic realities. Uh, and so that's my worry, is that we're having a huge, it's great in the short term to get to talk about it, but that because it's so much down in the weeds on policy and role of the UN, that then it ends up being, okay, well, that was kind of a dated document. That's the worry. All encyclicals speak to the current event. But the trick is always, okay, so how much do you do that? I mean, because, it, I mean, everybody knows about the paragraph about air conditioning, so that's sort of the funny thing. But um, there is a lot of detail. There's a heck of a lot about sort of what the UN can do and things like that. And so, but whether that's a, is the right thing to do in terms of the long term, I think only the history is going to be able to judge that. When, when I became a Catholic, I encountered these Vatican II documents, <laughs> and I was struck uh, reading Gaudium et Spes uh, and coming to, towards the end and finding all of these practical policy considerations, which now, 50 years later, um, I don't want to say look silly, but they look very dated. Um, and as I thought about that, I thought, why Why does the church do this? Um, and not to hit on the Gnostic thing too hard, but there is something anti-Gnostic about it, that the church actually cares about how the precepts and principles actually connect to real life. Um, it might hit and miss in terms of actual policy recommendations, which are used, I think, to inspire especially Catholic uh, politicians, to think about how their faith relates to the real world. Um, and so even if individual policy recommendations fall flat or they seem very dated in 50 years, that they don't make it through, they communicate something quite important about the faith, which is that it's not disembodied, that these aren't just theories that are out there, but they're actually livable, and we can think about how they're livable, and we can disagree about how to live them. I would just, only thing I would add was, you know, if you, if you look back at Rerum Novarum and the conversation that happened around organization of labor, I mean, there Pope Leo is speaking very much into um, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution and the things of that time. Some of those things don't apply anymore, and sometimes uh, when we look at our, our current reality, it's hard to even recognize what could have been. Gregory wanted to ban railroads. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I mean... <laughs> Yeah. yeah, let's ban railroad. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so I think I think your point that you know the church is speaking into a particular moment, even if it's sharing eternal truths, is is a very, it's a very uh, natural way that the social encyclicals have have done it. Um, can be good conversation about how far you want to get into the weeds uh, in any particular area, but I think there's 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 something about the fundamental concept that's right. Mm -hmm. My name is Pat McCormick. What is the opportunity for conversation with the with the Holy Father or with the Curia in the advance, in the time between now and the time when the Holy Father will be in the United States in September, number one. And then a minor question, which senator was it who mentioned the uh, encyclical and what was his point or her point? That's for you. You reference. Yeah. The second one. All right. Uh, senator Whitehouse, actually. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
the, the first part of the question, I didn't, I'm not sure I, f I fully How do we get in touch with Francis? What is the opportunity for conversation with the, with the Holy Father or the Curia between now and the time when the Holy Father will be speaking to Congress in September? Can I ask you a follow-up question to that? What, what do you imagine should be communicated? I mean, I mean, in a sense, you know, it, 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 what concerns the church has should be expressed to their bishop, and um, certainly, I mean, I, I don't think there's a real channel for communicating abstractly, but if, I mean, there's a debate to have, then the Catholic laity can have a debate, and mm -hmm. surely the Holy Father will be attentive to it. I guess the the particular thing that that I would hope that he would be mindful of in coming to the United States is that um, the level of environmental protection that we have here is second to none in the world, and the um, and for example, air conditioning, not to make light of it at all, is in our country a vital necessity for the poor. In in parts of the country where, but for air conditioning, there, there wouldn't be, for example, uh, people even living here, but they are living here. Like Washington, D.C., for instance. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I saw a piece the in August, the Wall right? Street Journal the other day about staying warm at work in the summer, <laughs> which uh, my wife resonated with very much because she's always cold when she goes to movie theaters and when she goes to big office buildings where they keep it at 65 degrees and she freezes. I think Pope Francis has that in mind, <laughs> rather than the little air conditioner you've got in your back bedroom, or k keeping you know the temperature at seventy-five, or who, who, who's escaping heat wave. I think he has more the the widespread you know uh, kind of luxury air conditioning that spreads throughout our malls and office buildings. Excess, excess waste. But he does invite a debate. And I mean, even the interesting thing about the encyclical is it's actually addressed to everyone, not just to the Catholic faithful, which also is sort of unusual. Nevertheless, he does invite a debate on specific kind of scientific questions. He, in fact, uh, specifies that. So I think it's appropriate. And I, I'd like to see that happen. I'd like to see Catholic laymen and laywomen who are experts in these fields. I'm thinking of a, an Orthodox Catholic climate scientist friend of mine who has written on this and has written on it to the detriment of his career in being willing to say things that were not especially popular, um, that you know is absolutely engaged. He's trying to figure out, okay, what do I do about this? Well, how do I talk about it? And I say, talk about it respectfully, engage the document, and let's have an interesting debate. And not now, if you're on Twitter, somebody's going to accuse you of being a dissenter if you think, okay, I disagree with the Pope on this particular question about you know, the, the feedbacks mechanisms in carbon dioxide. That's not dissent. There's a difference between an engagement in which there's a debate about those lower level things and dissent, which has to do with the sort of core truths of the faith. And so I think it would be healthy for us to do it in a respectful and rational way. That's the which is what That's we hard. haven't, I mean, we, you know, uh, it would have been awesome if Jeb Bush would have said, I agree with the precepts, mm -hmm. I agree right. with the principle on this policy decision, mm -hmm. uh, we might have a difference of opinion. That's that right. would have been such a better, Way better. Catholic response. You know, yeah. I, just, I just looked at Jeb, as wonderful as he is, and said, wow, catechesis failed. Well, um, yeah. You know, that yeah. <laughs> he did, he, it was sort of, it was the John F. Kennedy thing. I it have was. to say that these are sort of compartmentalized. I've got, I've got to distance myself yeah. from the foreign potentate. Yeah, and it was a very, and I, I don't think he had actually gotten his talking points down on that before he responded. And, and I would only add to that that, you know, if tonight's any indication, I mean, would you have come on a Thursday night to the Catholic Information Center to talk <laughs> about care for creation if the encyclical hadn't come out? Would, you, would that have been something that would have sparked your interest? Um, so here we are listening to folks' different uh, perspectives on, on the question. Um, the Holy Father has sparked, I think, conversations like this in a lot of different places. I think it will continue. Uh, and I think it's incumbent upon us to try to make it continue. Um, because I, I, for one, in any issue, particularly that touches on my faith, am most frustrated when people don't want to dialogue about it. You know, how can we evangelize if we can't dialogue? Mm -hmm. um, so I think creating some, some room for that is, has been at least a good byproduct, even if you don't happen to agree with some of the conclusions.
So, thank you. I'm really glad that gentleman back there got a chance. I was watching him with his hand all, all evening. <laughs> my, my name is Richard Ranger, and I work in the oil industry. Um, I'm also a kayaker and a bike commuter. Um, and I, one of the things that I, I'm interested in your response to, this encyclical is going to become hostage to our standard binary policy debates. And people are going to line up and take sides because that's really what, certainly in this country, what we do quite well and, and habitually. It seems that one of the elements of this encyclical that needs strengthening from Catholics, from people in authority, is the Pope's emphasis on the human ecology, on the place of man in creation, on, on the place of man as steward in creation, and, and the nobility in that, the purpose in that, what one of you said was both the blessing and the command. Mm -hmm. That that needs, it, it's going to be a long uphill climb to try to win that argument, but to me that's a very key element of this that the church and believers need to speak to. Well, what would you say? Well, yeah, of course, when we use the word steward, it's, I mean, the word dominion is okay. It's just that it's come to be sort of captured in a way. And incidentally, anyone that's read the encyclical, if you've ever had an environmental ethics course, you will have heard about an article by a man named Lynn White, written in 1967. And why this is the locus classicus of the argument that it was the Judeo-Christian tradition that led to the ecological crisis. The belief in human dominion is the problem and that we have to get away from that. And Pope Francis swatted that down. I always thought it was the strangest argument. Um, but stewardship includes both the care, but also the tilling, right? And so my view, I, I think, of course, anything is going to have costs and benefits. But the discovery of petroleum has lots and lots of benefits, obviously, and being able to discover it, figure out how to create technology to use it, to refine it, to extract it, that's all a part of stewardly dominion. Doesn't mean it's without cost. Uh, um, and so that's always the sort of uh, difficulty. I do think Pope Francis's assessment of fossil fuels is heavily shaped in this document. In fact, I can't think that he said anything positive about it, frankly. And in fact, the only time he did because he essentially calls out, what he calls for this, remember it's based on his assessment of the details of the science, that we basically need to quit using fossil fuels as soon as possible, and in some cases, people can choose the lesser of two evils. So in other words, if you're in a situation and you don't have a different source of energy, you can use it, but that's the best it gets, it's the lesser of two evils. But he, I, that's not an assessment of the kind of intrinsic reality of fossil fuels. I think what he's, he's doing is he's saying, if these sort of claims about it and about its effects on the environment are all true, then that's what it is. But notice the moral assessment. This is why this is difficult. He's making a moral assessment. So in that sense, it's morals. But the moral assessment is based on some prior assumptions about the details of the science and the effects. And so I can tell you, if you're doing a radio show, you can't explain this stuff in 15 seconds. They think, oh, Yo, you're just making it up, right? The Pope said quit using fossil fuels, so quit using, you know, it's sort of just that simple. And that's going to be very hard. I won't speak to the fossil fuel question. Did a nice job on that, but I would say that uh, you know the, the Holy Father really does give us a proper anthropology. Um, you know, we don't worship ourselves. We don't worship nature. That's as clear as can be in this document. In the integral ecology area, you know, our care for one another is bound up in our care for um, for creation. And so, instead of being fearful of some of the global conversations, I think we should be hopeful that people like us will take the teaching and insist upon development that honors um, the people who are there and the cultures that are there. He talked about the loss of a culture being as, as significant as the loss of a species. Um, that we will, we will insist upon uh, development that doesn't attach uh, reproductive rights as a, as a key component, which really has um, you know, a whole menu of things like abortion and, and contraception in it. So he gives us, I think, a way to engage the global I understand why folks have been skeptical of those arenas and why uh, they may be fearful of the outcomes uh, in some cases, but now we've got strong principles that are well articulated to say, and we're insisting upon um, this work being done in a way that honors the human person. And with everything, you know, I think one of the things he's seen uh, firsthand has been um, some extractive industries and the devastation that it can it can cause. In particular instances, in places that he's lived in, in, in the slums, uh, you know, where you've got the poor concentrated and living in subhuman uh, conditions. So um, he really. I think has the human person in their suffering in mind when he's talking about all of these things. Um, 
and, and that, that's not to dismiss his point on fossil fuel. I mean, I think he's pretty clear that he thinks they should eventually uh, be phased out, but um, I think there's a human being in his mind when he's saying that. Hi, my name is John Kappel. Um, I wanted to ask you about uh, climate change specifically. A lot of the reporting that I've seen on this is focusing very specifically on the fact that the Pope has endorsed the scientific consensus mm -hmm. that climate change is happening, it's caused by humans, and it's bad. Um, how much room is there for faithful Catholics to simply flatly reject that? Um, or are we talking more about, oh, well, the model's a little bit off, or you know, it might not have exactly these impacts, mm -hmm. but how much room is there for Catholics to basically say, no, he's wrong, it's not happening, it's not human-caused, it's not a bad thing? Um, and then uh, the, the kind of follow-up to that is, if that's the case, how much meaning does this document lose? Um, and if that scientific statement is lost, does this just become a sort of warm and fuzzy statement of we like animals and not destroying the rivers? Well, and that's the difficulty. The thing that, that Professor Pecknold mentioned is that the faith is concrete and physical. And so there's a reason. Because, I mean, um, my inclination is I wish it wouldn't get this far down in the details. but. You know, it does illustrate this point that ultimately our sort of moral principles have to apply in some way. Nevertheless, they are refracted in this document and in others through an assessment of the details of the science. And I can tell you, there's a couple of paragraphs where he lays out exactly what he thinks. And in fact, he refers to what he calls there's a general consensus on these things. Um, he talks, when you look at what the sort of basis of that claim is, the word that's used in English, I've only looked at the English, is scientific studies. And so if you look at, okay, what are the things that he talks about? He talks about uh, rising sea levels. He talks about massive immigration because of droughts and climate change. All the things he names are actually predictions of the models that are used by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. They're not actual things that are happening, and that's the kind of key thing. And so there, th there's a massive distinction that anybody who follows the debate knows between the model, so that's about 110 different computer models. These are very complicated models based on a particular theory about not just the effects of carbon dioxide and uh, greenhouse gases, but also uh, hypotheses about various climate feedbacks that either amplify or mitigate the effects. All right, that's where the entire debate is, is focused on those feedbacks. So there's a theory, and then the models project uh, what is predicted to happen based on, that, based on this. Anyone that follows this knows the models all run hot. Um, they, on average, run about twice as hot as the actual observations, certainly over the last 20 years. And so that's a difficulty, because you want your models and your theories, if they make predictions, to square with the actual observations. And this is the thing my, my friend who's a climate scientist is sort of frustrated, because he said, I wish, you know, I wish there had been a scientist that had been talking to Pope Francis that could have told him, actually, all those things are just, that's just what the models say are supposed to happen. That's not what's actually happening. And so that's the kind of difficulty. But I would say if your instinct is, for political reasons, to say, I just reject all that, that's the wrong instinct. If based on your actual careful knowledge of this thing, you think the Pope, his assessment of that is off on some, I think that's fine. I think it's okay to talk about that. The question is, I mean, God knows, though, your response, right? If it's just because you're just grumpy and you don't want to hear the arguments, that's bad. <laughs> that's just bad, right? Um, and so God knows, we're not going to know, he's going to know. If it's, look, this is my area, and that's actually it's more complicated than that, that's the kind of conversations that need to be had. And they need to be had publicly and in a spirit of, you know, that's just a commitment to truth that we all have as Catholics. And so that's what I would like to see happening. And I'd like to see it happen without everybody attacking everyone for being a dissenter if they disagree about the precise details of a climate model or something like that. And the trouble is, is that so few people actually go and read the whole encyclical, yeah. especially not twice or three times or four times. Most people are going in and looking for the things they agree with or they're looking for the things they disagree with, and they're really not being taught by the encyclical. They're not letting the Holy Father teach. Uh, there's not a, a, a receptivity, a willingness to learn, um, before there's a willingness, before there's a set of distinctions that can be made in which one makes prudential disagreements at the level of natural precepts. I, I think that that's when, when we hear uh, someone strongly reacting to something in the encyclical from uh, at the policy level, I think we also need to hear some, some expression of 
a knowledge and appreciation for the principles that it expresses. So that you could say, what if the whole scientific basis is totally wrong, ad arguendum? Let's say it's all wrong. There's nothing right scientifically. This isn't a, this isn't a scientific magisterium. It's a magisterium of authority. Um, so let's say all the science is wrong. Doesn't it still communicate to us essential principles for caring for creation? I'd say yes. And I keep thinking about Arthur Brooks' argument for poverty, uh, a kind of uh, optimist, conservative approach to the poor. Um, if you simply leave the environment to the progressives, you've lost before you've begun. Uh, Arthur Brooks' proposals, it seems to me, on the conservative heart, on, on concerns for the poor, shows that actually conservatives should make arguments not only for the poor that are optimistic and uh, bright, but also for the environment. Um, that, that push against the myth of progress narrative. Um, I think we really need that, and I think, it's, I think the, the very strong pushback against Francis is strategically dumb. Please join me in thanking our speakers this evening.